RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. What are central bank digital currencies? You've probably heard the term. And in one of our early promos when we launched RCR, it was me who said that we needed to ask questions about this and find out more what it all meant. Uh, Is it currency as we know it? Well, it's digital currency, but you might say we're already doing digital currency transactions with our FPOS cards and online purchasing, et cetera, et cetera. Jody Brunning is a sociologist. I've spoken to Jody before, was on another platform about another subject, but we're here to talk about central bank digital currencies and kind of the lead up to it, um, where that whole concept is right now, certainly in terms of New Zealand and how it could uh, sort of shake out in the not too distant future ahead. So Jody, good to talk with you again. Thanks for coming on Reality Check Radio. Good morning, Paul. Thank you for inviting me on. It's a privilege to be here. And good to talk with you again. So what aroused your interest in central bank digital currencies? To many, it's quite a dry thing to think about, to talk about, let's say, if they know anything about it. And that's a good question, isn't it? Does anyone really know what it is? Yes. Well, well. firstly, what aroused my interest in, um, in CBDC, central bank digital currencies, I've had a long-standing interest in how we um, appropriate money, how we produce money in society. We know that that money is in digital format. It's no longer, you know, pegged to the gold standard it's it's fiat so essentially when we have the when we look on treasury and they have the the pdfs that say vote that's that's the government allocating expenditure and so this is not you know this is a different idea about the whole we've got to pay all this debt back because if it's produced in new zealand for new zealand purposes it's actually very the government has a huge degree of fluidity about money printing but it's 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 usually not printing it's actually digital printing because it's being allocated through the different ministries and departments and agencies from the vote process i'm interested because i can see that scientists in new zealand my interest is in um environmental pollution and human health that was what my master my masters was on how it was difficult for scientists to do research on endocrine disruption and it's and, and it was because of the policy process and the decisions by funding committees and the way the policies were structured so that scientists couldn't look broadly and and once you start understanding where does the money come from why isn't the money there for these purposes how is policy not you start saying well, well what how how are we not creating this money for p- that public good why is so much science funding tied to innovation which is basically producing ip or something that might promote economic growth if we're lucky a patent something like that so that's why I'm now interested in CBDCs because CBDCs, as you said, are also digital currency. So they are basically the same as the existing digital currency that is allocated through the vote process that goes into the ministries and, for example, the um, Ministry for Social Development, that money will be put into the accounts of the public or that money will be put into the accounts of the Crown Research Institutes, you know, ESR, you know, so it's it's we're already printing that money. Um, but what this is, is it's, it's reconstructing the money to come through the Reserve Bank. Now, we're used to thinking the Reserve Bank as this apolitical Reserve Bank that only does 
monetary policy and, you know, monetary policy is about adjusting interest rates, you know, you know, increasing, you know, interest rates to stifle spending, to to reduce inflation, all that sort of stuff, lower to stimulate, that, that's, that stimulates spending, that's monetary policy. That's normally what reserve banks do. And fiscal policy is where the government say, well, we need to, if we want to create jobs, we might do that. We might create, you know, uh, you know, produce, build houses, and we might do lots of things through fiscal policy. This is interesting because this is distorting the Reserve Bank's traditional role is we're just going to increase or lower interest rates too. They're processing and releasing money into the, you know, into the ether. It creates enormous, enormous power, enormous because we could, you know, we should, we already should be able to do this through the parliamentary process. This is taking it into the 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 realm of reserve bank decision making. So this is about. I, I I find it very difficult, plausibly, to see this as anything else but expansion of power for reserve banks. Yeah, but um, they're being allowed to do it. Seems well up till this point, anyway. So it's yeah. So it's interesting. So let's quickly just. Like a CB, CBDC is a digital currency issued by a central bank. I'm just going to be very, a lot of the times I'll do absolute definitions that, that come from, come from mm-hmm. you know, another source. Um, it's a form of central bank electronic money that could be used by households and businesses to make payments and store value. So a report by the Bank for International Settlement stated that the term central bank digital currency is not well defined. So it's loose. So, um, so it's, it's it's not it's different from balances in traditional reserve or settlement accounts. So there's there's when CBDCs were would were would go straight into financial markets that would be known as a wholesale CBD. But a retail CBDC is known to meet the payments needs of households and business out, businesses outside the financial sector. Um. So we know, like, for example, you can look on the AtlanticCouncil.org CBDC tracker. There's currently 114 countries representing over 95% of global GDP are exploring a CBDC. In May 2020, just, you know, at the start of the pandemic, only 35 countries were considering this. Um, So um, as the Atlantic Council says, 11 countries have fully launched it and China's pilot now reaches 260 million people and it's set to expand to most of the rest of the country by 2023. and so, you know, in 2023, this year, over 20 countries will take significant steps to piloting a CBDC, Australia, Thailand, Brazil, India, South Korea, you know, and Russia. They will begin pilot testing. Um, and so the, the G7 com- economies are in, in on it, 18 of the G20 countries. This is huge. Um in the US, we they have Project CEDAR, which is the Federal Reserve Bank of New York has just announced the completion of phase one and phase two rollout of their wholesale CBDC exploration program. Um, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston called Project Hamilton announced the completion of a two-year project with MM, with MIT. So, so this is enormous and it, it, it appears to be very tightly coordinated. And, and we have to be, yep. sorry, no, no, I was going to say tightly, but from from where? From who? 
Um, are, yeah. are we just buying in? Are we, you know, part of I, you know, the I, inner, inner sanctum? Uh, what is it? I think I can. What, from what I can see, and we'll get on to New Zealand's position, um, New Zealand is, is a little bit more conservative than other countries. So I kind of believe civil society have to step up and support the conservatism that we're already seeing in New Zealand. But that doesn't tell us what's going on behind the back you know, behind the behind closed doors, for example. So, first, but first of all, I want to make it really clear. So, people think about get a bit confused. Is it blockchain technology? You know, is it distributed ledger technology where there's lots of different information in different places? No. Um, it, it as the UK government, um, the Bank of England says. Um, they, it is not likely that CBDCs will use any sort of distributed ledger like blockchain. Um, so, well, but they stated in 2020, while we do not presume CBDCs must be built using distributed ledger technology, there's no, so there's no reason CBDCs can't be built using centralised technology, right? So mm. that's all locked into the central bank. Some of the individual component innovations of this le- distributed ledger te- tech might be useful. Um, and so what, what, what the... Bank of England presumes is that they'll be they'll be working with private sector payment interface providers, and and these guys will, you know, is that banks? Will, is that banks in our sort of traditional? Well, it's fintech, you know. So it, it's fintech. Right. So you know. So and and this is how we get to that whole programmable money thing that people are talking about. So as the Bank of England said, they might be able to make to provide programmable money through smart contracts. That would be the fintechs theoretically would be maybe supplying supplying the tech to do that. You know, so often instead of using our own skills and developing our own knowledge inside governments, we like to contract out to consultants or to people that can basically they grab the IP from doing that and we're paying them to do it. Um, and so so what 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 the Bank of England say there would be a range of options for how this might be delivered, including building the functionality into the core ledger. So, again, it's a core ledger. It's held by the, the, the Reserve Bank, the central bank. So the power here is phenomenal. It's unprecedented, actually. Um, so that, that the functionality will then be provided via a separate, separate for example, module or enabling that functionality to be provided by third parties. And so, of course, the third parties we are, we envisage might just be the private sector. Right. Um, it's not and, clear, and, though. Yeah. And they could build cryptography into it to make it, but, you know, harder to see, but which could increase the security of that platform. But this needs to be carefully designed to avoid having a negative impact on usability or performance. Um, so we need to understand that's their problem. If they build too much privacy into it, they can't do what they need to do, you know. Um, so and and there's that great Pandata. It's on if you look at Pandata, I think 19 on Rumble, there's that really good um central bank digital currencies uh interview with professors and economic writers, and it's a really good and and they were talking about the fact that that the the banks won't hold our data, the bank won't hold our information. It will just be able to access it whenever it wants. Right. So do we actually need this? 
I mean, it seems everything seems to work okay. What, what's the argument for it in the form that you're talking about, apart from gaining, you know, un, unprecedented power over people's economic lives potentially? Is there any need for it, or is this something that technocrats are sort of having fevered dreams about and want to, you know, just put out there because it's the sort of thing that they would like to do? Yeah, I think I think you're correct. It, it isn't needed, and it's certainly not needed as a function that's controlled by um, the central banks or reserve banks. Because I I believe, and we can talk about this in a little while. Their 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 policy ideas are far more likely to come from offshore and be driven by offshore um, institutions rather than, um, for example, led by civil society. And so, and we know already, we know already, for example, that as I described through that vote process, we can distribute money to groups, to income levels, to single mums, to, to scientists, to, um, you know, charities, NGOs, to, to really make New Zealand thrive. We've got so much power to for example, to do research into all the environmental chemicals that are that are starting to pollute our freshwater and drinking water and to create, you know, innovative tech that will filter that and process that out. We can do all that, but we're just not because our, our policy processes for science are distorted. So it's 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 our social, cultural and regulatory attitudes to policy that are preventing us doing amazing things, not the fact that this technology is going to come and save the world. Right, which is probably how it's going to be sold or is even being sold at the moment. Yeah. What what groundwork has been laid here for in this New to, in New Zealand for this to happen? Because there has oh. been some activity, hasn't there? What's it been? Yep. So I think the primary groundwork, frankly, was undertaken at the start of March 2020 when um, Robertson, the finance minister, released what's called the Reserve Bank of um New Zealand Act 2021, which replaced the 1989 Act. So what's really interesting, the 1989, and I believe it was fundamentally changed to remove the constraints on that earlier act and to make to to enable an expansion of powers. Now, Paul, let me see, let me just say, there are going to be lawyers and economists and people watching this with far more expertise than me and so what I a humble sociologist yeah yeah I I invite those people that listen to me making these sort of guesses to come on and talk to Paul to talk to you if they think I'm right being incorrect so don't just put something in my Twitter feed and nag me please talk to Paul and because this is we need debate about this yeah. So, so I'm. A, so the purpose of in 1989 of the Bank of New Zealand Act was the top, the most important purpose was to provide for the Reserve Bank of New Zealand as a central bank to be responsible for formulating and implementing monetary policy designed to promote stability in the general level of prices while recognising the Crown's right to determine economic policy. Pivot to 2021, following the 2020 release of the bill by Grant Robertson, and the bill, it became far more simple. Let me just see. I'll just let me. It became far more simple. Um, it became about 
um, furthering that the top purpose of the legislation became to provide for the continuation of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Continuation? Like the continuation, you mean it carries on existing? Yeah. So if we go back to, so let's go back to 1989, the purpose. So the purpose for peeps not really into legislation, the purpose is, purpose sets the high-level principles basically that all the other legislation has to fit under. So the purposes in 1989 was to formulate and implement monetary policies, that's interest rate changes, to promote stability, um, and then the B was promoting the maintenance of a sound and efficient financial system and to carry out other functions. Um, once we hit 2021, A is to provide for the continuation of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, which... Oh, is that to just preserve its own power? Well, I don't was there any problem at that time that, that pointed to there may be, you know, a time limited for the Reserve Bank? But, so this is why we need to get those critical lawyers and those people that are listening to come and talk. And then B was to promote the prosperity and of well-being of New Zealanders and contribute to a sustainable and product, productive economy. So that's very fuzzy. So 1989 was far far more clearer. Do you think it's fuzzy on purpose? Oh, of course, yeah. because it, it loosens what they have to do. But then what happened down in Section 9 and Section 10, they stuck in the objectives and the functions. So they stuck in economic objectives to, you know, maintain stability over the general level of prices over the medium term um, and support maximum sustainable employment, the financial stability was to protect and promote the stability of New Zealand's financial system. Um, the central, then they put in a central bank objective and it, which made my hair stand on end a little bit because, you know, to, to otherwise act as New Zealand's central bank in such a way that furthers the purposes of this act. So the central bank objective is to act in a way that furthers the purpose of the Act. And the, the purpose of the Act, of course, was to, for the continuation of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Boy. <laughs> okay. I mean, so, so, Paul, we're here. I just want to talk about central bank digital currency, but we actually have to look at it in context of the legislation that's what that's overarching because if we don't understand that, we don't understand how powerful all of a sudden and how much more fluid the Reserve Bank's powers are now. Does this coincide with Adrian Orr and the new sort of crew at the Reserve Bank coming in? Because there was, you know, for many years, the traditional banking people running that institution. And there's been talk recently of, you know, a new crew. And uh, I remember um, someone telling me, I think it was Rob McCulloch, the economist, saying that you, you didn't even need to you know, know much about economics to be high up in that bank anymore. Is there a timing, you know, coincidence there, do you think? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, <laughs> that is a temp there is a temporal association and I but I don't I you know, all those all that chatting is like what we're here today to is today to do is to to really look at the, the expansion of powers and what the policy yeah. has happened. So I'm so it's very, yeah. I, I'm just trying to work out, you know, is this being set up? Is this a work in progress that's been going for a while? And if you look back at the moves, yep. like you say, as a sociologist, you like to swim upstream, go back, have a look, and you start to see, you know, these moves in a particular order, and, and you wonder if they're all connected, if you're joining dots here. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so exactly. So that's what we have to do. So just just to finish in, and then in just talking about the legislation, they, they there's a massive long section ten called the banks functions, and I think that's much 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 more broader in the 2021 Act than it was in the 1989 Act. And I really invite anyone to come and talk to you about how much how that those functions, which then in Section 11, the minister may add functions on the at the bank's request. So, you know, and, at and then their also, request. I know, right? And then if you look at Section 12, the status of the bank, the bank is a body corporate and it's accordingly a legal entity separate from its members, office holders, employees and the Crown. And so, so we just, so it's just putting all this in perspective because I'm not a lawyer. So you need to get a lawyer on who can talk about how I'm just, you know, raising. I know, we this. know of two, so we can hit yep. them up for that and, and okay. give them the the, the uh, points, and they can sort of work through that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's hmm. let's move on to the what well, the policy and the consultation that's gone on. So in 2021 consultation started at the end of the year and there were three lines of consultation. One was on how should, remember this is 2021 when we're really, the public had not really known much about CBDCs or, or what's happening. I'd say virtually nothing, yeah. virtually nothing, yeah. Yeah. So the first consultation was about stewardship and whether the, um, the sorry, they were looking at cash system redesign because there's less and less use of cash, but just quickly that's been nudged as well as there's less and less, you know, cash machines out there. Well, they, well they've stopped. They've put a limit of $10,000 cash now for any yep. purchase. So, so there's all these different things that are happening at the same time. And then then the, um, so the, at the moment the RBNZ has three work streams, there's cash system redesigned, there's CBDCs, and there's some mysterious ephemeral thing called private innovation. Now, three issues place papers were put out in 2021. September 2021 explored the stewardship role. Now, this is this is should get us a little bit interested because you know you have the vital roles performed by central bank money that are available um, to to already um, contributing to financial and social inclusion. So remember, they're not talking about monetary policy here and interest rate changes. They're talking about financial and social inclusion. Hmm, which and could be under, a hell of a wide mouth, right? I mean, that's that's a lot of things. <laughs> and then underpinning confidence in the value of private money, um, a role described in this paper as providing a value anchor. But then they're looking at the proposed high-level objectives for stewardship. This is, of course, when we're not thinking about CBDCs at the same time. This was to ensure that now in the future the central bank money, central bank money, is a stable value anchor for the monetary system and central bank money is available as a fair and equal way to pay and save, ensuring that New Zealanders have access to money in a form that suits them and their changing needs. So I don't think this paper on stewardship looked at CBDCs. I wasn't talking about them. So most of us couldn't look at that and go, they're talking about CBDCs Mm. here. Mm. So then the second... um, consultation in September as well was specifically about central bank digital currency. Um, And then the third one was the cash system redesign. Now the central bank, the, the second one, the central bank digital currency is where, so of these three issues papers, there are about 6,900 people um, 
responded to them, of which about 6,400 were exclusively in relation to the CBDC paper. So I do think that the Reserve Bank got a very strong message. The public are onto it, but they're onto this. And, you know, in this consultation, it was acknowledged how many people aren't on, you know, they don't have bank accounts or they rely primarily on cash. And for Māori, cash is a very important cultural um process for koha and for gifting and how Māori work. So, you know, this. I think the Reserve Bank of New Zealand might be being very cautious because they understand how important cash is to, to Māori tikanga processes. They, so they've, that, uh, they've stood up for cash, though. I've heard them, you exactly. know, saying that, you know, we want to preserve cash in the system and it's important, uh, yeah. has an important role, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, so right now... Right now, the Reserve Bank is very clear. CBDCs come inside alongside cash. And, of course, if they didn't do that, you know, there'd be a giant uproar. So they're not stupid. They're, they're smart. But what, what we also have at the same time is massive expansion um, of the public. And this is, you know, I've written about this separately in, onto digital identities, getting the, the real me digital identity system because what we're seeing more and more is if you want to be a government employee, it's much, much, much more easy if you sign up to real me before, you're, before you apply for your job. If you want to be a student, it's much more easy to sign up to real me. And, of course, um, you need a photograph and the photograph has to be very good. So one assumes that's um, that's the old iris scanning technology as part of. So that's already built in to, um, to the real me systems, which is all managed by the DIA, who, as I've written before in, in that brownstone paper, their budget's increased by a billion dollars in the last little while and, and the real me system, so the government talks to everybody about privacy, but the real me systems, the information sharing be government to government, not business to government, government to business, government to government is massive. And there's no regulator overseeing how that would work, what the implications are for privacy behind within government and the implications for the potential for abuse of power, which is the heart of what we're talking about with CBDCs, is the potential for abuse of power. Mm. So, so we've got this expansion in RealMe, the default as the RealMe digital identity, which becomes then can be toggled to become that wallet that becomes your, your everything. And you can encourage people to take on that identity if they haven't already because it'll be sold as making it easier to do all this. And and, and, and you won't be able to access, you know, like if you yeah. want to get that nice cushy government job, you know, or that secure government job that pays your mortgage and you have to go on digital, you know, on real me to do it. Or eventual access to money. And they were talking about on on uh, on the DIA on the Real Me site. They were talking about how many people were taking it up, and they've actually not not quite declaring that anymore. So we can't really see who's who's taking that up now. So so you know that so that's so yeah. So we need to be um, yeah. So forty percent of Maori. One of the reasons they use cash is for cultural reasons. 
such as koha and gifting. Um, and so, of course, the use of cash as a way to pay for everyday things has declined sharply. So this is their, their summary report, the Reserve Bank summary report. In, 19, in, in 2019, 96% of New Zealanders use cash as one of the ways they pay for everything, and this had reduced to 63% in 2021, um, you know, and... Heavy cash users has declined from 5% in 2017 to 2%. So they're, they're really aware that this is happening at the same time. So, But the question is why don't we just use the normal routes for, for the digit, using the vote process to push money into the economy to, to support science and, you know, in and human health and, you know, we can do that through our existing channels. So then if we if we look at their you know 2021 movements it seemed to really surprisingly mirror what was happening for example in Jordan at the same time um, I was going to ask you before central banks you, you you'd think that they'd be loyal and um, almost sovereign to the country that you know they operate and that they're tasked with um, looking after financial yeah. health of yeah. But we've seen in other things that this incredible connectivity between global institutions, revolving doors, the same names coming up here and there. How plugged in are all these institutions to each other? Well, we, we can we can see and we can presume that they're massively plugged in. I, I would be presuming there that the reserve banks, for example, that that were um you know, the, the, the Commonwealth would be all plugged into their own network. So we would be feeding, you know, the Bank of England and the Bank of New Zealand, Bank of Canada would, you know, be working together, for example. Um, then you have what's called the, the Bank of International Settlements um, and the Bank of International um, Settlements. They have a huge amount of power, don't they? Yeah, the Bank of International Settlements, the general manager stated in October 2020, the key difference with the CBDC is the central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations. So it's a, so it's a, so that's, that so not politicians, political. not governments necessarily, but a remote institution with no elected officials and probably well, no. most people wouldn't even know who, who was in there. Yeah, so that so so Carsten's saying presuming the central bank, which is the New Zealand central bank, for example, yeah. the key difference yeah. with the CBDC is the central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of the expression of central bank liability, and also we will have the technology to enforce that. I'm talking with Jody Brunning, sociologist, about central bank digital currency. So where does that leave the political process? And parliament well, and elected <laughs> officials. You tell me, and we'll both know. Well, it sounds like there's a big question mark there because if, if as, as as you're stating it and it's written down, um, we haven't got to that bit yet. <laughs> I know. So, so the the Bank of International, you know, settlements is sixty three um, central banks and and in and financial institutions that function with the BIS. So they basically create a complete sort of like framework that operates basically outside the law um, because they've got immunity. So they've got immunity and privileges just like the United Nations does um, under the International Organisations Immunities Act. So these these big organisations are unaccountable. Um, 
you know, and so how, so, you know, we, we presume that the New Zealand, that New Zealand will liaise with the US Federal Reserve too, for example. Well, they could be um, told what to do, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. And then the, the IMF. So the IMF is, um, Interesting because that 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 in April 2023 they replete, released a IMF approach to central digital bank currency capacity development. So one presumes that capacity development rates relates completely to uh, the purpose section A of the, <laughs> the Reserve Bank Act, which is to basically preserve its own posterity, from what I can understand. Um, and so. What we what we have seen is this capacity. So, um, so the IMF is really supporting CBDC capacity development efforts uh, to facilitate peer learning, developing analytic underpinning for staff advice to member countries. You know, and so there's a, a process of collaboration between the IMF and the member countries. Um, you know, and so we. So, so interestingly, so the CBD workshops were delivered in the African region, the Caribbean region, and in Asia Pacific countries. Now, so they they highlight a case study. So, listen to this. So, think about our own what we did in late twenty twenty one in the Reserve Bank. At the request of the Central Bank of Jordan, the CBJ, the IMF provided assistance to the CBJ to explore CBDCs and lay the foundation for a feasibility study. Starting in late 2021, the mission took place in three phases, including knowledge sharing seminars, peer learning workshops and fieldwork. And the mission team consisted of IMF staff from multiple departments and a short-term external um, consultant. And, 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 there is no doubt the IMF is prioritising CBDCs, capacity development to countries, um, and it's also currently meeting requests with budget augment, augmentation and donor donor funding to ensure even-handedness. So, so, so this is really the IMF is tightly wound through this, tightly. Okay, so I'm still trying to work out why politicians would put all this power into a central bank and not be the ultimate controllers of an economy, unless I'm missing something. Well, we and, do know and, that. In- and how come a central bank can claim such power? So we, it, it was, you know, the, the, the timely coincidence that this legislation, this legislation that loosened the New Zealand Reserve Bank's powers went through 2020, 2021, when everyone's hair was standing on end with, you know, SARS-CoV-2, coronavirus. So potential distraction, well, no, a distraction. We don't know if it was used as conveniently as one, but there was a big distraction at the time. Eyes were off the ball looking at something else. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And so what we also see at the same time, we see... We see the government's policy. So the more we depend on a central bank, the more we depend on the printing of money through the central bank, for example. So extraordinarily, at the same time, we've seen coronavirus policies where small businesses are, frankly, left to rot in the dust. Sure, they were given a bit of money throughout the pandemic, but once they lose their client base because their clients move elsewhere or stop depending on them, they're stuck. So we've seen that attrition where the the bigger companies are prioritized and the small government the small companies are left 
to go. Then the interesting thing is I've put a, an official information act request to Grant Robertson, Minister for Finance, to to ask about the amount of consideration uh, for increasing interest rates and how this will impact the well-being of small to medium-sized business and what analysis have been that been done to ensure that small and medium size businesses are protected through this time and working families. So what has happened with working families? Are they still able to pay mortgages? Um, what has happened to working families? Are they still able to afford food, put food on the table? I asked that quite a while ago and you can look up FYI, Jody Brunning, and it's still sitting there rotting. He's not answering it. I do not believe that Grant Robertson the Minister for Finance has ever once had a solid report that has looked at the implications of increasing the OCR and what that does to small business and working families. Yeah, well, the, the, whatever reason, who knows? But uh, just as you were speaking there about um, demise of small business, and it's not the only place in the world that that's happened because there have been similar yeah. policies and, and similar outcomes around other first world nations, let's say. Um, we know that um, a huge amount of power is held by a very small number of funds in the world that own a lot of very big operations. Without small business in the way, I guess it's it's them. And they're kind of going woke can't remember the acronym for the for the term ES something, ESG or something. They're going oh, there. ESR. ESR, okay. They're going um, pretty full on on that. With that amount of power, then you can start to dictate through a currency, I uh, could be going the wrong way here, their preferred behaviours on populations who have to use this currency. And it will be programmable. That's the concept, right? It can be – you can't program a, a $2 coin can you? But you'll be able to program this. Is this where we need to be thinking about where it could be heading? I know it sounds sort of suspicious, conspiratorial to some, but that will be, that could be a reality, couldn't it? Yes. It, it, look, it's, we have to, okay, what, what is conspiracy is, is when it's decided or, or behind closed doors. So I'm afraid the undeclared meetings between the IMF and the Reserve Bank amounts more to a conspiracy than us talking right now. Right. Um, and so the the um, Chinese, so they're so as I write in that Substack, the in an IMF an IMF hosted meeting to talk about CBDCs, um, the, the ex People's Bank of China IMF Deputy Managing Director Bo Lee in November 2022 stated, CBDCs can allow government agencies and private sector players to program to create smart contracts to allow targeted policy functions. For example, welfare payments, for example, consumption coupons, for example, food stamps. Now, we can already do that. We can already do that. But by programming CBD smart money, um, he said, those money, he said, can be precisely targeted for what kind of people can own and what kind of use this money can be utilised, for example, for food. So this potential programmability can help government agencies to precisely target their support to those people who need support. Now, this can already happen 
through government funding, through the processes, through the Ministry of Social Development. But he's there saying, no, 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 let us let us take control. Let the CBDCs in the central banks take control. And remember, he's the IMF Deputy Managing Director. So the IMF is tightly wound into supporting central banks to, to simply become more powerful. There is, there is absolutely no other way you can look at it. And when you think about all the assist, assistance and support that's being directed and, and the temporal association, we have a late 2021, you know, um, consultation process when the IMF's talking about that with all these other organisations. It's prompted, it's not prompted by civil society. It's prompted by, I suggest, the IMF. Right. But um, our central bank and others are listening and politicians in defining legislation or, or redefining it um, are kind of playing ball, it sounds like. And, and I believe that a lot of the politicians don't actually understand that that it's a smoke and mirrors kind of technology. It's it's the Wizard of Oz behind the green Well, how curtain. come we're talking about it and kind of know it and sense that there could be something up here, but they wouldn't? So, yeah, if you look up Hansard, because I did that yeah, too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the only time Good it was on, yeah. really, really discussed was was after the September 2021 over that time, the consultations over that time, you know, and, of course, there's no critical thought. There's It's just the assurances by the Reserve Bank Governor. Then if you look up the, uh, you know, if you look up um, RNZ, did RNZ cover that same time? Yeah, they did. They talked about what was happening by the Reserve Bank over that time to do the consultation, what they might have thought of. So they had maybe one article. TVNZ hasn't, haven't touched CBDCs because I guess they're all about entertaining. Um, yeah, audience and, couldn't probably cope with it. And then, well, I think if we actually had informative stuff, people just, people learn and understand. And once, and most people have a basic moral practical intelligence and can understand. Yeah, but you've that. got it, Jody. you've got to get over the hump of, the, the sort of pre-programmed attitudes. Yeah, we exactly. saw that. We saw that in the last few years. You can come up with every bit of link, every bit of evidence verbatim, even as it's in front of yeah. your eyes. Yeah. And even then it's a hell of a task. Yeah. So 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 the spin-off as well yeah. hasn't hasn't they've just re- re- done a little bit of they okay. did one decent article, but they haven't. And the other thing that we need to understand is because as civil society, what what we're informed by is what's around us and exactly, exactly what you're talking about. So the nudging process that comes through mainstream or legacy media. So when I watch Netflix or Neon or Amazon, I get the same nudging. I get the, it's the climate. It's never corporate pollution. It's never, you know, iatrogenic injury from drugs. It's always you know, there's, there's usually in a series someone will pop pills or someone will, or the known risks will be there, but nothing that is conspiratorial. Well, the glaring one is there's a Ukraine war, weapons being supplied are massive. There are bombs going off everywhere. It's the worst stuff you could ever imagine. It's going into the atmosphere. No one says anything. Yeah, yeah, and Russia is terrible, but let's not look at NATO encroachments. Well, so- they're, they're supplying, you know, weapons to keep this going. But there's no pushback from where you'd expect to see it from saying, hey, hey, wait yeah. on, you're ruining the environment here, by the way. Isn't that the biggest threat to life on Earth? 
Oh, yeah. And, of you course, know. the Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. You know, like when I was doing my undergrad, my agribusiness degree, we were, we were looking at how Ukraine was opening up, the opportunities for big ag, agribusiness to come in. And, and, you know, the Ukraine is in a very important strategic position. And so the idea that, that NATO then drops, you know, pollutant bombs all over it to kind of make Without sure. Without any questioning. It's. Yeah, you drive your car to work and, you know, you're, you're the worst thing. Anyway. It's, just, it's immoral. And so for me, yeah, so for me, I mean, we can talk about the SDGs another day possibly because I'm aware that to, let's just keep to, S, you know, CBDCs today. Yeah. Um, but it comes down to is this people-led or is this led by institutions outside of New Zealand? And I suggest that this is is this is led. And I, I suggest that the the average journo cannot spend five days looking into this, knowing that they will be able to publish it. Yeah, and 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 those on the other side know that. <laughs> Probably as well. Well, management knows that they know yeah. management won't won't accept it. So, so you know, but, but uh, IMF and, and all those institutions, they well, know that if it's couched in a particular way, it, it'll look too complex. It'll be yeah. too intricate, and it and they'll get a pass. And then, of course, we don't have. So the problem we've talked about today is I've looked at law. You know, I've looked at policy. I've looked at you know, videos and experience. I've, to, to research for today, I also looked on the scholarly literature. The scholarly literature won't talk about human rights abuses, but it'll talk about privacy issues because we're still not, Elizabeth Renieris is a really great um, scholar and she's drawing attention to the implications of digital technology to to be an abuse of human rights. Um, I've ordered her book. Um but we're not so so what we see is all these the ways we think are kind of trapped in the, the this this narrow so so universities today if you're a scholar you're an academic working in in a university you have to stay in your lane stay on your rails do not go outside so that's why we don't, so we don't have what's called polymaths at universities that can come and talk about the ethical issues, the scientific issues, the policy issues, and they can traverse broad, broad spectrum. So we used to have that. Everything's and in a silo now. Is that what you're saying? It's, we have massive siloized, and it's by design because of the funding streams, and it's because academics are short, are caught by the short and curlies, frankly, and so they can't step out. And then we've seen that officials working in ministries, if they make a generalization about policy being bad, they get caught too. Yeah. So okay. hmm. we we need to understand this is this is at all levels of governance and and the, the thing I've seen in when you look at about in the, the, the discussions on environmental chemicals, the person that can be technically correct wins because we don't know anymore. And that's all about the science, follow the science. How to judge moral, yeah. ethical, more nuanced issues because we're not seeing those moral, ethical, nuanced issues on Netflix or Neon or Amazon or TVNZ or RNZ or anywhere. Wow. I tried for years to get an interview on RNZ. <laughs> so here's some information. No, no, no playing ball, huh? No. Yeah, okay. For any reason, were you told why? Well, no, just no response. Um, I was wanting to talk about glyphosate, you know, talking about the regulation, you know, the fact that you have an international agency for research on cancer declare something's probably carcinogenic and New Zealand's EPA without a single public health epidemiologist 
discussing it says no, it's not a thing. And then the you know New Zealand EPA's committee never meets to discuss whether there's new information. They should be in the courts up for judicial review right now. You just reminded me, uh, remember it would have been 15 years getting on for that ago when the GM crops story popped up just before the election and I think it was John Campbell had Helen Clark on and it was like shock horror. Everyone was falling off their chairs and I think it it it, it was a close run thing in the election and it, it's a while back now. It's probably more than 15 years ago um, at the time because it was such a, you know, like a no-no. <laughs> that was then. So, the, so the, I'm a trustee of the Physicians and Scientists for Global Responsibility, psgr.org.nz. We're always looking for new members. And um, we were... We, the PSGR were established just for the purposes of the, the scientists, you know, the physicists, the me- medical doctors that were in PSGR to go and present at the Royal Commission for on genetic modification. And we know that that Royal Commission, many, many, many of the requirements put in place there have not been put in place today. And, and importantly, the Bioethics Committee, which was established, was then disestablished. So, you know, you need to look at how the Royal Commission on Genetic Modification has failed to understand how government really doesn't want to honour the findings. And back then, of course, I consider there was a much more nuanced, you know, the, the, the papers hadn't hit the digital world yet. So they were able to, they were more locally owned. They were still operating on the, um, you know, the advertising classifieds model. Um, so their funding streams were much more, you know, um, disaggregated and they could talk about these complex issues. So then we saw people marching. We saw people talking about this issue because I think Kiwis want to be informed. But we we don't have the central newspapers doing that anymore. There's been this attrition that most people that just want to be inverted commas normal haven't they haven't seen that that what's happened on the outskirts i've just seen the trans, transfer to the digital sphere and they 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 don't understand the, the the massive political shifts including offshore ownership that has occurred over that time yeah i had david seymour on this program last week and we talked about a whole lot of things but one thing he did raise and it wasn't an answer to a question of mine it was a broader question on how do we survive economically and and he he wants to go hard out on genetic engineering of crops yeah like really hard out and he and he he kind of said that if you weren't into that then you're some sort of luddite and you were you know a handbrake on the nation so that's that's where people are coming from political people are coming from at the moment so, so remember my background's agribusiness. You know, my in- interest is in agriculture, nutrition. So we don't have we have a, a, a sustainable futures far- farming fund or something, and they get drip fed peanuts compared to the innovation funding for IP. So we we our our funding for, for example, um, nutrition, soil, um, you know looking at complex farming systems, whether you're talking about um, pasture, um, dairy, uh, cropping, orcharding, our science for all those complex systems is negligible. The funding is drip-fed. So in that dearth, they turn around and said, oh, we need to bring in the GM because that's going to fix everything. It's like, no, it's actually not, and that can be demonstrated. But what we also see is massive, and I've talked about this before, you know, before as well, the um, 
the commissioner, the productivity commissioner, has has just basically said, "Oh yeah, we need we need GE," and the, then the government says the productivity commissioner says it, but in the productivity commissioner um, survey, like two people said they wanted it, and they were people with conflicts of interest. So, so this is how things get amplified. We're going to yeah. be aware of yeah. this. Yeah. You know, one person can say something, and as soon as you seize onto that and report yeah. it in a particular way, it, it yeah. kind of sounds like everyone with a brain is saying that. Yep. So on psgr.org.nz, if you look up interviews with scientists, I've interviewed Jack Heinemann, Professor Jack Heinemann. He talks about scalability. And this is the key issue with GE, with biotech. So, you know, when you used to, you know, you know, cross-fertilise for hybrid vigour, a new plant, you know, the changes would be slow and subtle and they'd either work or they wouldn't work. And, and once you get biotech and you get that new species and then you you plug that new species, you know, into, you know, 500,000 acres in the period of three or four years, you get the scalability. And so even, and, and, and with the, with the gene edit, new gene editing techniques such as CRISPR, you still get off-target or in unintended effects. And the more you scale it up, you're still going to get them and they're going to get bigger because yeah. proportionally you'll scale it up and they'll get bigger. So Heinemann talks about this amazingly and he's like, I, you know, you should be interviewing him because he's mm. he's he's great. Um, well, yeah. 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 So so this is, and so of course, of course Seymour's going to say that. He's going to sound like he's, because in New Zealand we love sounding like we love technology and we're really advanced and pro, but the truth is all our troubles are based on us not wanting to look at the causes of the problems that are already happening. Why are we emitting, you know, the you know fluoride into our rivers right now at a rate of knots, or pharmaceuticals into our rivers at a rate of knots? Why is that not in the mainstream media? Why, is, why can mainstream media f- focus on GE is the answer? but not talk about the need for a technology in our filtration systems. Yeah. But, um, but uh, this is the scalability is the same problem we see with CBDCs. This is yeah. sc- let, let, let's get back onto that because, all right, to, to finish up, let's say, the train is on the track and it's rolling. That That is obvious. From what you see now, the awareness of this, and we're helping raise that in our own little way right now by talking about it. But it, it seems to me that there's, probably so much energy and planning in it already that the the time frame of this is known by some. Um, is there enough time to head this off at the pass? Is it possible? Or can we only hope to limit the programmability of any future central bank digital currency? I mean, what do we do? Central banks should not be controlling what money is sent out to who and the programmability of it. There is absolutely no need for central banks to have that power. They're, they're hoping that we see them as apolitical because, of course, in the past they were their, their functions were limited. The minute their functions are extended, they will become a political actor. So we need, we can, we can say no. We we can actually say no because, you know, the we we can already track payments. We can already. It all comes down to resourcing the the, the regulators, resourcing the people that look for, for example, fraud or look for harm. You know, so I think this is this is a wizard green green curtain um, effort, and the IMF 
you know, we as as citizens, we need, you know, and residents, we need to be looking upstream and drawing attention to how normal it is that the IMF would be overseeing this and working with the Reserve Bank and banks, and how unfortunately it it, it devolves so- sovereignty to, you know, the offshore powers that actually have great seem to have very good relationships with our reserve banks and i i believe you know we have laws here such as you know the treaty of waitangi and so on that can help us actually look aside look askance at this and go this is this is this is a technology and they're not there's it's not there's no distributed ledger it's not bitcoin it's not mysterious you know, stuff, it's actually the central bank having control of the money supply and they can't. They actually can't control. It's, 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 it shouldn't happen. And I'm happy to be incorrect about what I'm saying right now, but what I'm saying to all those people that then say, Jody, you're wrong, is go and talk to Paul. <laughs> yeah, come and talk to me. Yeah, no, that's a good place to start. At least we can sort of air the views and people can gauge whether they are credible or not. We do know, though, it seems that our Reserve Bank has kind of gone woke. And the reason I mention that is because that's where the, that use of programmability can start to become a real problem because you can start to use that to enforce you know, concepts of how the world should be, how you think it should be, regardless of anyone else, and you can enforce that behaviour and, so- and, and control the whole thing, unless I'm missing something and I'm not very smart, but that's what it seems like, it, it, you know, the, the, the kind of perfect storm is sort of, forming up right now that could deliver that so the wokeness is is it's performative if if, if oh, okay yeah yeah it, it just is performative because the, the the truth is we have the capacity through vote and appropriations right now to turn mental health let's talk about mental illness my mates in ambo i saw her yesterday she said all they're seeing is is kids and young people and people out of control they're so harmed they go to the hospital the hospital's got no then they have to go to the go into cells because they're, they're harming themselves I mean it's out of control and you know we can turn around tomorrow and we can change the funding schemes we can give these kids access to food we can change food education because we know a lot of this stuff is connected to the microbiome that's science we can all our brain research institutes right now are focusing on developing more medications they're not aimed at reversing chronic disease so the idea that the wokeness of the reserve bank is going to address our societal ills is absolute bullshit and poppycock excuse me for the strong language Mm. um, because we have the capacity but what we have underfunded and and you know whether you want to call it um um, oh, the terms escape me, but the, 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 what we've seen over the last 20 years is a removing a broad range scientific inquiry and uh, tracking the drivers of harm in society. We're not tracking small businesses. We're not doing all that. So the Reserve Bank getting that saying we're woke and saying we can do this without actually the fundamental knowledge infrastructure in place inside government and across our scientific institutions, that is completely decoupled from um, public-private partnerships, which distort what we're going to, how we're going to learn, how we're going to understand the drivers of harm, the wicked problems, you know, what is ultra-processed food doing, all that sort of stuff. So our societal problems are so much 
addressing them is based upon knowledge and just giving the the CBDC, the, the Reserve Bank, the capacity to print money, we already had and, and to control that money too. And to control well, it, it's chilling. I mean, if you can't if you can't put gas in the car this week, you're not driving your car. Yeah. Tick a box on less emissions. Yeah, and so and so the emissions I use, you know, I, I've always thought the climate change is plausible, but what I understand now is the way the CBDCs, oh sorry, the Sustainable Deve- Development Goals are ignoring pollution and in, in, in ignoring ultra-processed food, ignoring what what is driving chronic illness, ignoring what is driving neurodevelopmental harms and delays in our children, they're not addressing that because that involves regulating corporations, regulating chemicals, right, regulating biotechnology. So as far as I'm concerned, if only climate change is a, is a proxy for sounding woke on environmental sustainability and until we're supporting our, our farmers, our, our scientists to ensure that our children and our rivers are healthy, the SDGs are, are just, they're, they're, it's word speak, it's it's. Word salad, whatever word you want salad, to Word salad, yeah. 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 Give me a word salad, please. Yeah. All right. That's been really interesting. And let's hope people will, you know, um, follow your advice or, you know, we're offering to talk to people. We can come on and talk more about it and try and get a sort of like a big picture view of the piece parts that fit in and try and work out for ourselves what we need to think about because yeah. it's sort of pretty fuzzy right now, though you've added clarification to it. I, I'm always just curious about motivation for these things. You know, why do people want to do these things? Power. What uh, power? Yeah, power. And a, a final thing about the SDGs: I, I attended an SDG conference up at Auckland University. Now, Auckland University have a very prestigious law school up there, and in that law school, there is a ton of expertise on constitutional and administrative law, precedents of law that require that the public interest is served when officials are producing legislation, are acting under the power of the Act. In this STG summit, they talked about Mataranga Māori, which is great, they talk, but they, the most they spent most of the summit talking to young people about how are you going to save the world and look after the SDGs. Okay. And I, I went from thinking this is an interesting summit to this is captured because why aren't those lawyers from that law school walking in and talking about how the government, through principles of constitutional and, and, and administrative law, can require elected members and officials to on other purposes and principles of, for example, the Health Act or or whatever. And, and none of that was there. So these young people remained in absolute ignorance of the ways and the processes through judicial, judicial review, for example, that we can make the world a better place. They were instead, you know, they were sort of basically encouraged to go and work out how to do recycle, recyclable coffee cups. And it mm-hmm. it was so ludicrous and it was such a missed opportunity and it was very disappointing of the University of Auckland. I was utterly dismayed by that, that summit. That well, either it's an epic blind spot or it's willful. You want it that way. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. All right. Thank you, Jody Brunning, for coming on Reality Check Radio and having that fascinating chat. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Paul, and um, best of luck with Reality Check Radio. We'll try and keep it real. And and one last comment. The truth is a million pieces of information, a thousand pieces of information. 
So that's what, you know, we've got to keep doing. We've got to keep pushing information grounded in half of the info I got today was from, from Wikipedia, you know. Yeah, it's and, all out there, right? It's but all out the there. Atlantic Council, but then there's this great, you know, um, independent researchers globally too that you can look at. So, yes, go to the scholarly literature, but listen to Corey's Diggs and Whitney Webb and, you know, all those all those other global people that are really trying to build a picture of, of what happens behind the scenes um, when it shouldn't be behind the scenes in government, where it should be in front of us and it should be transparent and accountable. Sociologist Jody Brunning here on Reality Check Radio, Central Bank Digital Currency, coming to a central bank near you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.